than money or wealth, but Christ made himself of no reputation. He deliberately took away his own reputation. Now, this reminds us of what really the story of the nativity of Christ is all about. And it takes away all the tents and all the glitter and all the romanticism of the, the stable and all that kind of thing. And it reminds us that he, he did something phenomenal. He came from heaven's glory and he made himself of no reputation. Now, the Greek word that this originates from is the word kenosis. It literally means to empty oneself. He emptied himself. Now, apparently in, 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 in the Greek language, this is the, the more precise uh, translation. He emptied himself. But there has been much debate and discussion about that translation because while the word empty might be right, does that word, in our understanding, convey what was actually done? Did he really empty himself? Uh, William Tyndale opted for this phrase. He made himself of no reputation, and this phrase has stuck through the Great Reformation translations of the Scripture leading up to the King James translation. You see, the problem with just taking that word empty without any kind of explanation, it gives the appearance that Christ literally became nothing. But that's not true. He didn't become nothing. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote, and we know exactly what he, he, he meant. Charles Wesley wrote, he emptied himself of all but love. And if you look at our hymn book, it has the words, he humbled himself in matchless love. And the word emptied is changed there. And there's very good reason for that because there's inherent dangers in saying that he emptied himself because he didn't empty himself of everything because he had the power of deity. He could command the waves to obey him. He could raise Lazarus from the dead. So he didn't empty himself, not in that sense. Vine is a, a great resource for trying to understand the, the Greek words of the New Testament. And he said this, Christ did not empty himself of Godhead. He did not cease to be what he essentially and eternally was. The authorized version, while not an exact translation, goes far to express the act of the Lord. You see, in essence, he remained God. So though he became man, in essence, he remained God. Uh, Paul uses the term kenosis here, empty himself. He used this term as a metaphor. It was never intended to be taken literally to the full extent. And the term refers not to essence, but to form and appearance. So the word empty is used, the word kenosis is used, but we only view it in terms of his form, his appearance. He became man. He appeared as a man. He actually became man. But in essence, he remained God. Uh, the Apostle Paul would write to Timothy, great is the mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And it is a mystery. And it's something that we cannot quite get our minds around. And we 
We never will, and we'll probably understand it. Well, we will understand it a little bit better when we get to glory, but we'll spend all of eternity just trying to work it out, how the Son of God actually became man. But very simply, our translation reads, and, and it is, it, it's a phenomenal piece of writing, that he made himself of no reputation. So we're going to think tonight, how did he make himself of no reputation? How did he do this? Well, he did it, number one, through his humanity. The Son of God, the one whom John called the, the Logos, the eternal Word. He dwelt in eternity in a spirit form. And now, he was in the likeness of flesh. You know, we should never think that spirit forms are somehow unreal. Because a spirit form can be invisible to the naked eye doesn't mean it's unreal. Because everything that we have in this world was made of someone that we cannot see with the naked eye. That's God. God made everything. God made everything we can see. God made everything we can touch. God made everything we can feel. And yet, God is spirit. Spirit is more real than material. Because material will pass away, and material will fade, and material changes, and material degrades, but spirit lives forever. And so he dwelt forever as the, the eternal spirit, and then he took upon himself the likeness of men. He took upon himself human flesh, and he became human flesh forever. So although he did become exalted here in verse 9, that doesn't mean that he ceased becoming man. He became glorified humanity, but he still remained man. So once he became man, he became man forever. And he's a man today at the right hand of God the Father. And so he made himself of no reputation through his humanity. Now, when we think of humanity, we think of sinfulness. He didn't take on sin. He could not sin. But we also think of the weaknesses of humanity. Humanity means to be finite. There's certain limitations to humanity. And Christ willingly subjected himself to those weaknesses of humanity without sin. He suffered and he was tempted on every point as we are. And you think of everything that you have suffered in this world. You think of everything that you have suffered in life. You think of all that you have felt by way of grief or pain or anxiety or stress. He was tempted on every point as we are. And suddenly we begin to understand how humanity made him of no reputation. Now, he is all-powerful, but yet he learned tiredness. The one who has all power, he learned how to become tired, to become weary. He was the creator of mankind, and yet he subjected himself to the abuse of his own creatures. He is the eternal one, but he became subject to the limitations of time. He went from one day into the next, and while he knew what was happening the next day, and while he could control what was happening the next day, yet he subjected himself to time. And he became that little babe, and then he became that toddler, and he became that boy, and he became that young man. And he went through all of those ages. And yet he is the eternal one. 
who in essence cannot change. But the most remarkable thing of all is this. He took upon himself the very form of a sinful creature. So whenever you looked at Jesus Christ, you looked at a man, you didn't look at one with a, a halo around his head or, or one that was, was glowing in this special glory all the time. You just saw one that looked like any other man. Another man in a world of sinners. Yet he himself was sinless. He made himself of no reputation through his humanity. But he also made himself of no reputation through his subjection to the law. As the eternal son of God, he was not subject to the moral law. You see, God's not subject to the law as we are. God has made the law. God has fashioned the law. God has formed the law. God holds man accountable. From that point of view, he's above the law. God's law is just the reflection of his whole being, of his whole nature. It's what he is, righteous. So God doesn't become subject to the law like us, for the law was made for sinners. The sinners might be subject to it. The sinners might learn. That's why the law was given. But yet, by becoming man, Jesus Christ became accountable to the law for us. He willingly subjected himself to the demands of the law on our account. That's why Paul wrote in Galatians 4, 4 4-5, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth a son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, we could only be redeemed whenever he came into the world and became subject to the law. Now, it wasn't difficult for Christ to maintain the law. It was impossible for him to sin. He is absolutely impeccable. He could not sin. But yet it was humbling for him to be held accountable to that law, to be exposed to the precepts of the law. You see, we need to obey the law if we are to be right with God. We cannot obey the law, so he obeyed that law for us. He became accountable to the law on our behalf. And thank God he passed every test. And then he went to the cross and he was exposed to our accountability. And he was exposed to our judgment and our suffering that we might be redeemed and adopted, as Paul wrote, into the family of God. So he made himself of no reputation through his exposure to the law of God. But he also made himself of no reputation through his servitude. We are told here that he became a servant. He he took upon himself the form of a servant. Through the incarnation, Christ as man entered a life of service. He became a servant. John has this wonderful phrase in John chapter 1, that he dwelt in the bosom of the Father. That's the way he was before he was born, in the bosom of the Father. That's a picture of resting, of reclining. It's a picture of intimate fellowship. But then he became man, and he had to serve. And he didn't just take upon himself a life of service, he took upon himself an eternity of active obedience for us. He would never rest for one moment, and still he does not rest, because he ever liveth to make intercession. He never stops praying for us. In Hebrews 5, verse 8, we read, 
Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. He is a son, the son of God. That doesn't mean that he was ever disobedient, but he had to learn to obey his father as a man, and he had to learn to obey his father through suffering. He never had to do that throughout the endless ages of eternity. Reclining in the bosom of the Father, he never had to learn to obey through suffering. And he served his Father by giving that human body in totality for us. That was the depth of his service. Christ, in the Gospels, he, he talked about himself being a servant. He came to serve. He came to be a minister. The word means to serve. In Mark 10, 45, he, he challenged his own disciples who were bickering with each other, who's going to be the greatest, striving with each other, full of their own pride, full of their own self-importance. It seems ironic, almost laughable, and yet it's tragically laughable that here were these men with the Son of God right there in the midst, and they were bothering about who would be the greatest, and there was the greatest one of all in the midst. And yet he was the lowliest of all. Striking, isn't it? He said in Mark 10, And so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be minister unto you, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for the many. The greatest, he said, is the one that serves, the one that gives. And there's a season of giving, and we think about the one that has given everything through service. And that makes him the greatest of all. That's a challenge for us all. Because if we are to truly be blessed by God, we need to learn how to serve. He not only became a servant of his father, but he became a servant of his sinful creatures. He served us. He came to serve us. He said in Luke chapter 22, verse 26, and again he was challenging his disciples, but ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat. But I am among you as one, as he that serveth. I, I am here to serve. And he, he serves us. And that was so exemplified. And Peter was so astonished, he couldn't take it in. Why the Lord would get down on his knees and take that basin, take that water, take Peter's feet and start to wash his feet. Lord, you can't wash my feet, he said. And Peter hadn't got the lesson. The Lord was the servant. And throughout his life, he was restless. He was energetic. He worked himself to the bone that he might serve. And that service took him all the way to the cross. And even now, he actively pursues our salvation. He left behind that place in the Father's bosom to serve us. And is that not a challenge to us that we need that kind of mind? Because this was exactly why Paul was writing these words to the Philippians. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Take a piece of Christ's mind and live that out in our lives. He was selfless. He was self-deprecating. And that's a challenge to us. He did that to save us. And how we should give ourselves for the salvation of others. 
And we do think of those whom we don't know, who don't know the Lord. Those around us, those in our communities, those in our families. And it's surely a Christ-like spirit is a spirit that wants to reach others as the servant. And then he also served through his poverty. He set aside the outward power and glory of his deity. The power and glory of his deity was still there. In him resided the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Paul also wrote that. But he set aside the declaration of that and he embraced a life of poverty. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sakes he became poor that ye through his poverty might be made rich. But what, what does it mean he became poor? Does it just mean he became physically poor? Well, he was physically poor. Does it just mean he had, had, a, had a peasant lifestyle? What does it mean he became poor? Well, it means much more than physical poverty. It means more than that. He gave up the riches of his eternal and heavenly glory. And he just set those riches to the side. And he lived in this morally bankrupt and destitute world in the body of one of his immoral creatures. And yet he himself was sinless, taking upon himself again the likeness of sinful flesh, his, his glory was no longer seen by men as he became poor for us. You know, in, in John chapter 17, verse 5, he says something. He refers to what he had before he became man. And he said, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He reflected on the glory that he had before the world was. What he had then. And yet, he embraced this body of humanity. And he was reflecting upon that. And he said, Father, glorify me again with thine own self. Give me that glory again that I had. Ah, there's a mystery here that we cannot begin to understand, but there is more to Christ's poverty than we will ever fathom. Charles Wesley wrote, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. In heart and soul and mind, he experienced this poverty every day he lived among sinful men. The very thought of a king giving up his riches and his palaces to live the life of a pauper, it's unthinkable. Such a thing could happen. And yet Christ did this. And he is much greater than any king. He embraced the poverty of this world. And again, what a rebuke to humanity. The pride of humanity, the selfishness of humanity, the greed of humanity, the materialism of humanity, the inflated egos of humanity, the longing to be praised by others, the self-advancement of men, what fools we are in the light of his devotion. And as a result of his poverty, as a result, as a consequence of that poverty, we are the heirs to a fortune, to an eternal fortune. And we can be so easily cut up by the 
materialism of this world, but we must always remind ourselves he was poor that we might be rich, not that we might be rich in this world. We may be, and if we are blessed with that, maybe use it for his glory, but ultimately we have riches that cannot be downgraded by inflation. We have riches that cannot be stolen. We have riches that we cannot be defrauded out of. We are so rich, richer than we realize, because he became so poor, because he made himself of no reputation. But finally, he made himself of no reputation through his mortality. Christ's final and greatest act of being made of no reputation was death. He was obedient. He was the servant unto death. But Paul goes further. He didn't just come to die. He came to die the death of the cross. Crucifixion was the means the Romans used to rule the world. Wherever the Romans went, if there was one thing you were afraid of, you were afraid of being crucified. You would embrace any death but crucifixion. You would embrace a swift death. You would embrace even a painful death. It would happen quickly rather than be crucified. The cross represented the greatest act of savagery that the prey of man had ever invented. It was a shameful death. It was only reserved for slaves. Free men could not be crucified. Only slaves could be crucified. But it was only slaves that were guilty of some terrible crime. And so there was an awful shame in, in crucifixion. The victim was stripped naked, fixed to a stake by nails, left to die as a public spectacle. The shame was immeasurable. It was felt acutely by the family forever. And after the person had died, after being left for days to languish, the body was thrown into the public rubbish tip to be buried, to be burned actually. In Jerusalem, the bodies were burned along with the filth of the city unless someone claimed it. And of course, Christ's body was claimed by Joseph of Arimathea. And this was the death he chose to die for us. Remember it says, he made himself of no reputation. It wasn't that he became a victim in the normal sense. He chose this death. He had control over all of this. He bore our guilt. He died bearing our guilt. Those words in Hebrews chapter 12 say that he despise the shame. You know that passage in Hebrews chapter 12. He despised, he, he despised the shame. And it's, it's a very interesting phrase that. Hebrews chapter 12 and, and the verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. You know what that means? He, 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 he felt the shame. He would rather not have faced that shame. He despised the shame. He hated that shame. Because no one wants to feel ashamed. It was hard for him to feel that shame. It wasn't easy. And yet he embraced it. He felt the shame for his mother. He looked down at her, weeping at the foot of that cross. He gave her into John's hands. Why? Because he felt that shame for her. He felt it in a a way that we can't begin to appreciate. He felt the burden of it. And perhaps that's the sense in which we view kenosis 
he emptied himself. And to me, the translation emptied himself makes perfect sense when we look at the sacrifice of his humanity. He gave his body, he gave his soul. There was nothing more to give. He gave everything. The spear going into his side, the blood and water flowing out. There was nothing left. His soul was experienced to the full darkness, the weight, the guilt of our sin. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He surrendered all. That's what it means. He made himself of no reputation. And C.T. Studd, of course, took all of that. And he said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. And with that, he blazed a trail for God in India, China, and Africa. Because he stood into the sacrifice of Christ. He lived that out. May the Lord help us to be grateful tonight for what Christ has done. And may he help us to live that sacrifice out in our lives. Let's get before the Lord now for prayer. Let's seek his face together. Thank you so much for coming along tonight. Appreciate those that have joined us through the live stream. And you please be praying for us tonight yourself. Um, if you could remember those that are sick in, in our congregation Remember particularly Mrs. Boyd, she isn't going to get home for Christmas. She would have really loved to get home for Christmas. That's not going to happen. Um, it's just going to take a little longer for her to get fully moving again. So she's just asked for prayer that God would just give her strength every day. And uh, she undergoes this rehabilitation. Just pray for her sister that she'll know strength. And remember Sharon, as she continues to recover at home, that the Lord would undertake for her and others that are sick laid aside, others that are lonely and sad. Just bring them, please, before the Lord at, at, at this time. Uh, so let's get before the Lord and let's seek his face together and let's pray that we'll know his presence as we call upon his name at this time. Perhaps, Paul, would you lead us in prayer? And then one after another, let's seek the Lord and pray for the meeting on Sunday that we'll know God's presence as we gather together.